0: Uh, We are going to be jumping right back into Ephesians uh, after Easter. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Uh, Michaela read it a little bit earlier this morning. We have been in this series for a little while, and uh, we will be finishing it near the end of the school year. But uh, Ephesians is a fantastic book. We talked about the idea that over the first uh, four chapters or so, Everything in Ephesians is about what it is that God has done for us, and we're required to do nothing. Nothing's asked of us, there's no commands that are written, there's no imperatives that we're supposed to participate in, everything is about what God has done, the ways he's blessed us and encouraged us, and uh, invited us into his family, and now uh, we've moved into this section that is uh, a bit more of a statement or a command or a challenge say this is the way in which we are called to live. It's a a huge section of scripture this morning, verses uh, 1 through 20, and it will be impossible for me to get through every little part of it. So what I want to do is just look at the first verse, and then have that first verse be described throughout the remainder of the text. So our verse this morning that we're especially focused in on is verse 1, and it says this, or it starts off, and says, therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Now, oftentimes, when we think of the word imitation, we think of mimic, to copy, to follow, and all of us have probably had someone in our lives in which we've wanted to mimic. I know that uh, maybe it was a mother or a father that you so desired to have your life look like theirs, a great friend your favorite sports star or celebrity. I remember growing up when I was in middle school, I think I've told you of this gentleman before. His name was Pierre Joseph. Pierre Joseph was like the guy that I so badly wanted to be. He was Haitian, which would have been a difficult for me to pull that part off. But the rest, I was like, man, if I could act like him, be like him, play soccer like him, Um, I grew up, as many of you know, on a college campus and near a college campus, and he was the star soccer player, and everything that he did, I wanted to copy. I wanted to mimic him. And our instruction this morning from Paul is simply that, to imitate God, to have that be the very uh, part of who we are. I kind of define imitation this way, uh, to align our character, our belief, mindset or action with a template so that the copy reflects the original. So in our case, to so align our character, our mindset, our belief, and our action, basically all of our life, to specifically imitate or mimic God. That's the desire. That's what we're called to do in this particular passage. And one could argue that the very foundation of, of all of humanity, is built on this idea that we are to imitate God. From the very fact that we were created in the image of God bears witness to this idea that we are to be in the process of imitating Him. To be human is to imitate God. To mimic, to reflect, to embody His attributes, His qualities, His characteristics. When we begin to think about that, sometimes we, we uh, make it really simple. We say, if God is holy, then I'm to be holy. If God is humble, then I'm to practice humility. If God is Trinity, then I am to be one with others in unity. And we tend to think of it that way. But it also means that if God is those things, and so much more, that we're supposed to reflect all aspects of who God is. So, we are to at some point embody... The kind of patience that God has. At least the patience he has with us. We're also to mimic his anger. At the things for which we're supposed to be angry. We're supposed to mimic his justice. If We also think about it, he created man and woman, male and female in his image, which means we're supposed to embody what we would con- traditionally consider the more feminine characteristics of who God is. Maybe being more nu- mothering or nurturing. For others of us, we would think about uh, embodying or mimicking the more masculine or what are typically known as more masculine characteristics that we often associate with our understanding of God. The idea is that in everything, all the New Testament is speaking to this idea that we are to embody, to walk out, to live in the imitation of God. He carries on in verse 1 and says this, so imitate God, be imitators of God, as dearly loved children. And very simply he says, dearly loved children, and the reason I think he does is because we all understand that children may never listen to what we say, but they simply imitate everything we do. Um, James Baldwin made that statement, children have never been good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them. It becomes natural, just a part of who we are. We begin to walk like, talk like, act like, live like those people we admire. And so the very challenge in this text is to imitate God, and then I believe the rest of this section is describing ways that we carry it out. And so this morning, we're going to look at three of those ways. Let me pray and ask God to allow this to directly uh, impact our lives this week. Let's pray. God, it is a task far beyond what we know personally we're capable of, uh, to imitate you. The text in 1 John speaks to this idea to walk as Jesus walked. We know we fall short of that very goal, that very aspiration, but we also believe That by your grace, we can each day reflect you a little bit more. I pray that this morning, as we look at the text, that you might remind us of certain ways we're invited to walk, and that you might challenge us in new ways, and that all of it might be for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The first idea, I think, found in the text that speaks to the idea of how we are to imitate is the idea of walking as children of light, walking as children of light. If you look at the uh, text, and starting in verse 3, it says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness uh, must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But but when everything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that has become visible is light. Therefore, it says, Wake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The first big idea is for us as His children to walk ...in light. Paul is big into this idea of walking. He speaks about it all throughout Ephesians. If you glance at the screen in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says... ...good works have been prepared in advance for you to do, so walk in them. If they're there, live into them. He then uh, talks about in uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 1... ...to walk worthy in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received. In chapter 5, verse 2, to walk in love... And then in uh, chapter 5, verse 15, to walk not as the unwise, but as wise. So, all throughout the book of Ephesians is the idea of walk, 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 walk. And uh, specifically in this section, to walk as children of light. And I think the big idea behind this uh, concept of walking is all about direction, it's all about orientation. What is the way in which we're walking? What is the direction? in which we're walking. And you notice that in verses uh, 3 through 5, he describes a lifestyle or a direction that would be considered negative. These are the things to avoid. And then a lifestyle or direction that would be considered positive. These are the things that you should live into. Uh, And what he's really doing, I think, is describing options for you or pathways to choose. Do you walk down that which is leading to darkness, as he describes it, Or do you walk down that which is leading to light? Now, in my particular upbringing, often when we came to a passage of Scripture that was similar to this, where it created long lists of don't do this or do these things, uh, that often there would be a, a huge emphasis on describing each of the things that we're to avoid or each of the things that we're supposed to do. And so we would spend a while trying to dissect each word. Maybe you grew up in a similar situation where you heard uh, list described that way. And so what would happen is uh, we would hear don't have foolish talk or coarse joking uh, or anything like that. And then we would begin to say, well, the technical Greek word for foolish talk is this. And for coarse joking, it is this. So if you're saying these particular words, don't. And if you're saying these words, eh, they're kind of acceptable, because we all know that words change over time, and so back a while ago, it wouldn't have been a good word, but now it's an okay word, still maybe not the best word. And then you begin to, like, try to parse it all out. Then you make up new words, and you're like, well, is that in the good list, or the not so good list? And we begin to decipher uh, what is it that we're really supposed to do, and who gets to decide? That was always my struggle with my parents. Like, who gets to decide if this is a word that's in or out? Who gets to decide if this action is in or out? Who defines these things? And so, we begin to try to dissect it, and maybe that's not the intention of Paul. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, and I'm not saying that there's not good that could be gained from it, but what I am suggesting is that maybe Paul is just simply trying to illustrate things that he sees in the community, and he says... What I'm seeing, if you live in these ways, you're probably not walking toward imitating Christ. But if you walk in these particular ways, and again, it's things he's seen among the community, then you are in imitating Christ. This is what it means to walk toward darkness, this is what it means to walk toward light. And he's simply giving illustration to the very lives that they were living. Because I think what the real concern is, and what Paul is really trying to get after, is the orientation of our lives. Is it away from Christ? Is it away from God? Or is it toward imitating God? Is the movement in your life one that's drawing you closer to what it looks like to live like Christ, or is it one that's walking you away from it? And the reason I suggest that is because uh, much of the Bible, if you've noticed, is about movement. Even the idea that Paul is suggesting that we walk in these ways speaks to the idea of movement. It speaks to an idea of process. He doesn't say, instantly be this thing. He says, walk in this way. Meaning that you were here, and eventually you're getting to here, and eventually you're getting to here, but you're moving in the right direction. It's process-oriented. It's not about a product. It's not about a moment. It's all about the trajectory in which you're living. And so growth really happens by hundreds of small intentional steps in the correct direction. I mean, been, there's an author, Eugene Peterson from a long time ago, wrote a book. It's obedience over a long period of time in the same direction, right? It's about movement. And you notice this throughout the Scriptures. Uh, Let me give you one simple example. One of my favorite psalms is psalm number one. The first one. The start of the Psalter. And he says this in verse one. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. Now here's not the point of the psalmist. He's not wanting you to ask the question... What does it look like to walk in the counsel of the wicked? Who are the people I'm standing next to? What does it mean to sit in the seat of scoffers? He's also not necessarily trying to get you to ask the question, well, who counts as wicked? And is wicked worse than sinners? Because it seems like it comes before sinners, but it sounds like in the trajectory of the passage, it's getting worse. He's not asking you to figure out who are the mockers or the scoffers. That's not the point. The point is the movement. The point is you're passing from a movement through a group of people to being stationary among people. You're moving from the outside to the in. You're going from a place where you're not associated with those who shouldn't be associating with, To a place where you're dining with them. You're in good company with them. You're living among them. Your life is tied to their life. Right? That's movement. That's trajectory. That's what the psalmist is trying to get at. And I think that's also what Paul's getting at. So to look at the list isn't just to say, what does each of those things mean in Ephesians? To also look at the list is to say, what are the other things that are not on the list? that are in my life, that are directing me either away from or toward Christ. The idea is to imitate God in a way that my life is oriented around and I am in pursuit of Him. That's the first idea. Walk as children of light. The second idea is found in our passage is to redeem moments. The text says this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand the will, what the will of the Lord is. Right? The whole concept is making the best use of the time. To redeem the time. To make the most of every opportunity is often how people describe it. It means to buy up the time or to rescue it, to redeem it from loss. You know those moments where you feel like it was a lost opportunity? This is technically saying, redeem that moment. Capture that moment so you don't ever walk through life going, man, I missed another opportunity, and another opportunity, and another opportunity. This same concept in Ephesians 5 is found elsewhere. If you look in uh, Psalm 90, it says this, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even... By reason of strength 80, yet our span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may get or gain a heart of wisdom. Chrysostom speaks to this idea that uh, time does not belong to you, time belongs to none of us. It's what we do with the time allotted. It's how we take advantage of it. It's how we live into it. It's how we seize those moments that are worth capturing, that define what your life looks like. The Greek word here for time is not to be viewed as an extended time or linear time. It's all about the idea of moments or opportunities. I was talking with someone the other day about uh, the significance of time. And how we, I think, as a society, really struggle with um, the way we understand time. In fact, one of the, probably the the struggles that we talked about the most in our time together was this idea that uh, we in our society have an incredible pace currently. That uh, we always feel, whether we should or not, we always feel hurried, rushed, behind busy, that regardless of uh, how well we stay on top of things, there's this level of uh, underlying stress, a current kind of within of being unsettled, whether you're in college and it's deadlines, whether you're at work and it's deadlines, whether it's with the kids, whether it's um, in whatever stage of life, there's this, I think, a growing anxiety related to busyness, the pace. Feeling like I have to get back on emails or text quicker than I did before. We long for the days when we drop it in the mailbox. It'd be like a week before we ever got anything back and we'd write another letter, right? Some of you don't even know what that means, it's okay. <laughs> but that, that's what we long for, right? We long for a, a, some type of change as it relates to time, specifically with pace. But I would suggest that our issue isn't so much pace, that our issue is that we have a time-value problem. What I mean by that is we don't give moments of time their appropriate value. Some moments we value far too significantly and they're not worth valuing at the same level as other moments that we sometimes let pass by. It's a challenge to figure out what are the appropriate moments. I had this uh, friend... Uh, we were in ministry together for years. It was prior to me moving here, and he moved, and, and we're now in uh, separate places doing ministry. And uh, we were together for a long time, and this particular individual, he had just an unbelievable way of walking through life. He seemed to capture moments in a way where uh, he never was flustered by the pace of life. He never seemed to uh, be in a hurry. He just had this appropriate weight to everything he did. And uh, if you were to look at his life, he was involved in everything. I mean, whatever it is that you thought you could sign up for, do, commit to, that was this individual, but it never seemed like he was stressed. He never seemed like there was a moment he was impatient with someone. He always had time for the greatest of things and always time to capture the simple moments. He seemed to like have this way of walking through life. And the more that I've thought about it over time, the more I've become convinced that what it was all about is he had a good way of determining what are the things that are appropriate and the appropriate weight to give them. I'll give you an illustration. I uh, live with uh, a middle schooler and a couple high schoolers. And uh, living with them gives me, at moments, these uh, flashback times to my middle school days. They'll do a particular thing, and it'll be like, I'm back in that moment, feeling what they feel, asking the same kinds of questions, wondering if I was like that in that moment. And uh, here was a, a typical middle school experience for me, okay? And maybe you can relate to it at some level. Uh, My kids have uh, revealed this to me uh, over the last several months. But there will be a time in middle school I can flash back to it. Uh, I had homework, it was getting a little later, it was after dinner. I probably had squandered some time prior to me needing to get homework done. And I probably had, on my plate for that evening, 10 math problems. I probably had uh, a chapter to read and maybe a one-question essay to complete for the next morning, right? This is middle school, mind you. And, uh, and I remember going, I can't do it. I, this is never going to get done. And my parents are like, you're going to be fine. I'm like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> you, can, you don't understand what it's like, right? Those moments where you're like stressed out, and you're going, nobody gets it, right? Feeling like this will never end. There's so much weight and pressure in middle school, right? There's so much that has to happen in this moment, right? And maybe you're relating and you want to come alongside of me when I was younger and you want to come alongside of students in our community and you just simply want to say, maybe you're putting a little bit more weight in this moment than it deserves. Maybe you can calm down a moment and just think that if it took you three minutes per math problem, you'd be done in about 20 minutes or so. With math, if you take five minutes, seven minutes to write that one question essay? Like we're talking, you're going to be done here in less than an hour. It's going to be all right. You still have a couple hours before bed even at that point. Just relax. That moment's going to pass. You'll be fine. Okay. The problem is that all of us seem to have those moments. Now it might not be five math problems, it might not be a simple essay, but when we pause to think about it for a moment that we've put far too much weight in something, we've made it far too significant, and at the same time we seem to let moments pass by that are full of weight. You've maybe been in those situations where you're with someone else and you can see they come with this weight on them and they're ready to share and you can kind of tell. But maybe they're not coming to you, they're coming to your friend and then your friend just lets that moment pass right by. Because whatever was going on in their world, they didn't see that as a moment to be captured, a moment full of opportunity. Maybe you find that in life there's moments that come and they just seem to kind of drift away and you look back on them and you go, Oh, I missed it. I missed that chance. Maybe it was because you were giving too much weight to something else in that moment to see the thing that actually carried great significant weight. We all have those moments, moments, that we fail to capture because we don't see the value in them. And I think that's what he's getting at. He's saying make redeem the time. Capture those moments. Make them significant. Don't let them pass you by. And if we're honest, we could probably think of many of these moments. Not long ago, I had one of those moments where uh, I had... Been planning on getting up about 4.30 that morning into my room at 3 a.m. Comes a particular child that wakes me up, shakes me out of my slumber, and, uh, dad, dad. And, you know, in that moment, what I wanted to do is just kind of roll over, pretend I didn't hear anything. (laughs) Pretend it was just part of my dream and that it would maybe take care of itself, but it didn't. Dad, dad. And so there was this uh, opportunity. I had a bad dream. We pray with me. Sweet moment. And I was like, what are you kidding? Go to bed. Go to bed, right? I didn't. You're wondering, maybe he did do that. (laughs) Maybe he is a jerk. Uh, But no, I I took the moment, right? I captured it. We prayed together. Send him back to bed, kiss him the head, get some sleep. It's going to be fine, right? That's a simple one. It's a moment that we all would have captured. It's a moment that we are able to recognize as simple in terms of imitating God. We would recognize, and some of us maybe need to learn this lesson, that when we come to God in the middle of the night, he's not like the dad that just goes, get out of my face, man, go back to bed. He's the dad that's like, I will sit with you forever and listen to whatever it is. To imitate God in those ways, to look and reflect him. But it's in those other moments that are less obvious that I wonder. It's in those car rides. It's in those questions that are asked. It's in those times a friend comes. It's in Moments where you're sitting and you see the sunset or the stars. It's those moments where you have doubts about God but you don't think it's possible that the person next to you has them so you don't share. But we all know they have them too. It's capturing those moments. It's not being afraid to live into those times that I think we've got to redeem. So the second way to imitate God is to redeem moments. The third and final way is to be filled with the Spirit. The text says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul says to be filled with the Spirit. It means to be being filled, is the technical. Be being filled. It's a continual. It's the idea of the keep on being constantly and continuously filled with God. To continue again and again and again to be filled with the Spirit of God. And what Paul does is he describes this as his third kind of way of us imitating him. To be one with the Spirit. And next week, what we're going to do is unpack this in more detail, especially as it relates to relationships. So, verse uh, 18 through chapter 6, verse 9 are all intimately connected into this idea of what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit as it relates to our relationships. So, over the next, like, three weeks, we'll talk about what does that look like in marriage, what does that look like in, uh, in family relationships, familial settings, what does that look like in co-worker, and uh, community kinds of settings, right? That all of it is tied to this idea of we are spirit-filled people, that the Spirit of God resides within His children, and it is our responsibility to continue to open ourselves up to Him, to continue to fill us. That is what it means to imitate God, to be filled with the Spirit of God. But I want to leave you with this final thought about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. There's this uh, passage in Zechariah where God is speaking to Zerubbabel. And He makes this really cool statement. Then He said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. I want to encourage you with this as we leave. It's not by your particular strength. It's not by your ability to resist sin. It's not by your ability to somehow fill yourself with the Spirit. It's not your ability to somehow stay obedient or holy or committed or faithful. It is none of those things. It's not by your strength or your power. If imitating is left to us, we fall short the text says it is by my spirit. It's a dependence on the spirit of God. It's a willingness to open myself to the spirit being poured into me. I'm going to leave you with this quote. Because I think it captures this idea that it's not in our strength to imitate, but it is in our ability to open our heart. Don't pray that God would teach you how to love like He loves. Pray that He would fill you with Himself and that He would love in and through you. Do not pray that He would teach you to have joy. Pray that the living God full of joy would enter into you. Don't pray that He would teach you how to be peaceful. Ask for the God of peace, the Prince of Peace to infill you. Because if you try to imitate in your own strength, you will be a miserable replica. But if you allow the impartation of Jesus Christ to overtake you, suddenly it all works because it is him imitating himself, and he is very good at being God. Imitation is God being very good at him being himself, and us being a part, a participant in it. Let's pray. Amen.